Well, good morning. Well, welcome. If you're new, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. It is my privilege to worship God with you and open up God's Word with you. We're working our way through the book of Acts, and we're on Acts chapter 19 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can begin to work there. The book of Acts is just the story of our, uh, it's our story. It's our, our faith family all the way back to the beginning and the work of the Spirit of God in them and through them. And we're, we've been asking, God, would you do in us what you did in them. So Acts 19 is where we're going to be, but I'm going to actually have you uh, kind of put your thumb in there and then uh, turn over to Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to start today. So Acts 19, Revelation 2. As we continue in this series, uh, the gospel today is going to come to a place called Ephesus. Uh, and really, the center of, of the New Testament church is going to shift for a third time now in the Bible, in, in the book of Acts, from Jerusalem to Antioch. And Antioch raised up church planters and sent them out. And now it's going to arrive in this place called Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, uh, ancient Asia Minor, the province of Asia uh, in, in Rome. And it, it's going to be this place that is really the pinnacle of the ministry of the Apostle Paul for two years. Uh, and so uh, Ephesus, uh, the church at Ephesus is interesting because we get to see in it the, the birth of a church. Uh, more ink is going to be spilled about the church of Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament. Uh, we have the book of Ephesians, First and Second Timothy, First, Second, Third John, uh, and even Revelation. Well, we'll see uh, the church at Ephesus. Man, they had, they were stacked as far as a uh, a staff is concerned. Like we had our staff retreat a couple weeks ago. I think we have a great team, but none of them have written any part of the Bible. But this church did. So you had the Apostle Paul there. Uh, he would write letters to Timothy. And then uh, you have Apollos was there. Uh, you had the Apostle John would come and be an elder there. And he would write first and second, third, uh, first, second, third, and John. And so that's just a whole different level uh, of leadership that, that no church has ever been able to replicate, right? Like when we say, uh, the Bible says Jesus said, like that's, that's good and that's authoritative. But, but the, John would be like, hey, one time I was hanging out with Jesus and he said, I and mean, that's just a whole different level, right? Uh, so in, in every way, these, this church is set up for success. And so we get to see the life, the birth, the life. And then when we get to Revelation chapter 2, something interesting happens. We get to see a full life cycle. We get to see a death of a church. The last couple of weeks, if you've been joining us, uh, by, by virtue of the passages we've been in and the news that's been coming down, uh, we've been looking at this idea or this, this thought, how, how are you and me, if we're followers of Jesus, how are we going to make it to the end? Are we just going to assume? Are we going to hope that we drift into heaven? Uh, what, what are the ordinary means of grace that God is going to use to hold us fast? And, and so we, we, we've been doing that the last couple of weeks. This is part three of that. Because the, the fact of the matter is every day we're seeing more and more uh, just notable people, notable pastors and authors and worship leaders coming out and saying, I'm out, or, or others being taken out by, by their sin and idolatry and, and their pride and, and other ways. It just people uh, seem to be dropping left and right. And I've been reading all these articles and listening to podcasts, and, and they all do a, kind of an autopsy. Like, how did, how did things go there? How did this person get to that spot? And, and, and it's really helpful for, for the rest of us that are like, man, we don't want to end up there. But what if, what if instead of doing an autopsy, you could do a pre-mortem on your life? <laughs> what if you could look down the path of your life and faith and say, this is how I'm going to burn out. 
This is how my passions for Jesus are going to fade. This is how I'm going to walk away from the faith. If you could do that, then wouldn't you make some adjustments? Revelation chapter 2 is going to serve as a kind of pre-mortem for the church at Ephesus. Uh, you know, uh, I first heard of this concept pre-mortem through a, through a leadership book. It was actually business. And it, it was encouraging businesses to do a pre-mortem. Say, how is your business going to die? On what day are you going to file for bankruptcy? And how are you going to get there? It's kind of, it's kind of morbid, but, but when you do that, you think, man, market conditions could change. Leadership failures could change. Man, training could happen. A disruption in the, the economy. Th- these things could, could affect us. And now how should we react? Okay, so two classic examples, Blockbuster and Netflix. They were both in the same business. Rent the movies. One had a store brick-and-mortar model. The other one said, uh, you, uh, it was almost even more difficult. You need to uh, tell us which ones, and we'll mail them to you. Both of them had a resistance to any dis- disruptions in, in technology, but, but one of them was able to look down and do a pre-mortem and say, we need to change, and the other one didn't. And you know what it is. Some of the most ridiculous, that's not only true in business, but, but it's true in, in marriage. Like, so the most ridiculous counseling I do is premarital counseling, right? Because no one thinks they need it. They're just like, oh, we, Mark, what are you talking about? I'm like, what I'm about to tell you, you won't remember a word. But I want to set up an appointment right now on my schedule six months from now that will tell you the exact same things I'm about to tell you. They're like, what are you talking about? We don't, we don't argue. We don't fight. We just love each other. It's going to be easy. I'm like, okay, okay, well, and then I'll, maybe if I can push back, and maybe if they're just a little bit self-aware, I'll, I'll say, hey, can we do a pre-mortem? Can, can, can you tell me how you're going to get divorced? They're like, what are you talking about? We're getting married. I don't want to get divorced. No, no, tell me how you could end up in divorce, how, how your kind of character and, and uh, personality, how, how could you end up? And then they're like, well, theoretically, you know, we could, you know, drift apart. I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, what would that look like? Well, you know, th- there could be a, a adultery. Okay, so what, what guardrails are you going to put in place for that? There could be serious disagreements on how we raise our kids or, or, or our finances, and, and then they begin to think, okay, we need to have some conversations because they've done a pre-mortem. Well, the same is true for our faith individually and for churches. You know, before we ever launched Redemption Parker, before it even had a name, the core team got together and did a pre-mortem. We said, before we go public with this, how is Jesus going to snuff out the light of Redemption Parker? Like, when is the day going to come when the doors show just closed for good? Like, what, what's going to lead to that? And we began to talk. Well, maybe we drifted from the gospel. Maybe we didn't have meaningful membership. Maybe there was a failure in leadership. Maybe, maybe the finances weren't, weren't just there. Uh, this, whatever we, we did, we, we talked about it. We said, okay, in light of those dangers on the horizon, how should we react? Well, well, like I said, the, the, for the church at Ephesus, Jesus is going to do a pre-mortem for them, along with six other churches, seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, in the book of Revelation, before things start getting weird and dragons are eating babies. In, in chapter 2, we get to see Jesus address the church at Ephesus. So as I read, I'd ask you to listen carefully. This is God's Word. 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches in Asia Minor. They are a light to the world, and it's a picture of Jesus walking among them. And then Jesus starts his message to the church at Ephesus with a right and good commendation of what they're doing well. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. (coughs) Down in verse 6, he says, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Those are false teachers, which I also hate. So Jesus comes to this church, and he's like, Look, you you are doctrinally sound. Like, you you go to their website, man, they check all the boxes. They've got a Bible college on the side. They they just really hold hold to the truth. And and it's no wonder when your pastors, Paul and and John and Timothy, like, doctrinally, they are rock solid. And more than that, they they are steadfast. There's a lot of persecution going on. There's a lot of false teachers. They're they're able to call them out, and they're they're able to just hold fast. It says they're enduring patiently. I mean, these, these are church folk. Like, the, like, I'm going to this church, and I'm like, hey, when's the next coming to members class? Uh, how do I sign up for this church? Man, you check so many of the boxes. And so you go to the church, and you're, they're just like hardcore, solid. I mean, every worship song they sing, you're like, that is right on. That's good. That's solid. There's no heresy there. Like, sign me up. But, but after a while, you're like, something's not quite right with this church. Like, they, they have really good doctrine, but I, I can't quite put my finger on it. Like, there's a, there's a coldness to them. There's a, there's a hard-heartedness. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just because, you know, there's just so much pressure outside the church that, that they just really double down on, on right and good theology, on, on loving God with their mind. Maybe, maybe that's it. But you know what? They're kind of like Pharisees. But their doctrine's solid. Doctrine solid. So then Jesus comes to them and says, But I have this against you, which you never want to hear from the word and from the mouth of the Son of God, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You're, the center of your faith has, has moved from your heart and mind to, to only your mind. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, when Jesus calls them to repentance, when God calls you to repentance, when your sin is exposed and you have the opportunity to repent, that is always God's grace to you. It is always God's grace to you that you get an opportunity to repent. And so this isn't a, an autopsy yet. It's a pre-mortem. He says, unless you repent, this is going to happen. But you can repent. He says, go back and do the things you did at first. That's great marriage advice. But it's also great advice for us as followers of Christ. And he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. If not... 
You've abandoned your first love. So do the things you did at first. Well, well, in the Bible, in Acts chapter 19, we get to see a picture of the things they did at first. And we get to see what are the things that stirred their affections and how can they guard those things so that they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, let's look at Acts chapter 19. Verses 8 through 10 are kind of a summary of the two years of ministry in Ephesus. And so I'll I'll just read that. And then it's going to dive deeper into some specifics. But it says this, And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. These are the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary means of gospel proclamation, as he always did. Verse 9, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So so the, the, the gospel community moved from the synagogue to the school. And in first century Ephesus, in the hall of Tyrannus, see, everyone would get up at daylight and go to work till about nine or 10 in the morning. And then they'd knock off until uh, in the middle of the day and they would come back to work about three or four in the afternoon. Well, in the middle of the day, every day for two years, says the apostle Paul came in that time and he just told them about the, the truth of the gospel. Let them drive deep in what the knowledge of who God is. Let, let them soak in um, what who Jesus is. They just got to learn every single day from the Apostle Paul. And then we see just an amazing result of that. Verse 10. This continued for two years so that all, all, like the all means all, all the residents of Asia, that's, that's Asia Minor, that's Turk, modern-day Turkey, about the size of the state of Colorado. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is astounding. At Redemption Parker, we've been around for about two and a half years. So this is two years. It says, and now imagine if it was that we would gather such that and just go deep on the gospel, dive deep on on the things of God. And then at the end of that two years, we are so motivated by that, that every person in the state of Colorado knows the gospel. They might not believe it, but everyone has heard it and known it. That's, That's amazing work of God going deep and wide through the church at Ephesus. And they begin to go and plant all sorts of other churches that we read about in the New Testament. The book of Colossians, for example. Paul never went there, but the Ephesians went and planted the church. And so Paul wrote a letter. So that's kind of the big picture. But then it drills down into the actual atmosphere of Ephesus. What you need to know about Ephesus is that it was spiritually a powder keg. Like the the veil we talked about, the veil between heaven and earth, the veil between the spiritual reality and physical reality. In Ephesus, it is is very, very thin. Like like there are just some bizarre things that are going to happen. There are some powerful God things that are going to happen. And and Paul will remind the Ephesians later in his letter to them that, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that there is a real spiritual battle raging all over in every place at all time. But some places it's easier to see than others, right? So get outside of North America, and, and quickly you'll, you'll begin to see that there is a, a thinner veil in some places. Like when I'm standing in the killing fields of Cambodia, the veil is thin, that there is a real spiritual demonic force at, at work. I had a friend that uh, was a missionary in northern India. He told me about a, a particular class of uh, Hindu holy men called the Agori Sandhu. I didn't say that right. 
but you know what I'm saying, because none of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so these Agoris, uh, they will uh, they'll leave their family, and they will go live amongst the funeral pyres on the edge of the Ganges River. They will go to the burned, charred-out remains of the dead, and they will take that, and they will begin to cover themselves, cake themselves with, with that. What, what they're trying to do is, is, is so associate with death that they become immortal. And, and so they'll cake themselves with that. They'll, they'll take human skulls and fill them with whiskey and drink out of that. They will eat the charred remains of dead people. There's a, there's a documentary you can watch where one Agori is waiting for four days on the edge of the, of the Ganges River and, and a body floats down and he takes it out and just starts going to town on that thing. There is a lot more worse than that that I won't share with you. But, but to, to, to just say the least, there are some spiritual dynamics going on in that moment. Just this embodiment of taking on death and evil. Uh, my friend said that the, the city is very, very crowded, and yet whenever one of these guys was come down, you knew because the crowds would part. No one wanted to get close to this, and they would just be walking through the crowd. And my, my friend said whenever he would see one of these men, uh, it just his spirit would be provoked to immediately earnest prayer. Because he felt the spiritual darkness and reality in that moment. And again, if you know your Bible at all, you know that that is true not only in northern India, that's true right here in Parker, Colorado, but the veil is a lot thicker here, isn't it? As Matthew pointed out in the study this week, it's thicker than a bowl of oatmeal, right? You just don't feel it, right? You, you just don't, you don't get it. When, when you're looking out at the houses, and you're like, this is nice. This is, this is good. Um, when, when I go to Costco and there's a thousand different things clam, clamoring for my attention and saying, uh, get me, I'll, I'll fulfill you, I'll satisfy you. This will make you, you, you feel uh, comfortable and safe or whatever the case may be. There's a thousand things just calling for my attention. But you know what? I've never been provoked to prayer in Costco. I'm just like, how can I get a meal out of this thing with the samples? And I, if it's a good one, I'll come at it from like four different angles so she doesn't recognize me or whatever. But I've never just been like, you know what? This is calling out to my soul, asking me to give myself away. No, I'm like, oh, that looks good. I should get that. There's a real spiritual battle. And in Ephesus, the veil was very, very thin and we're going to see the thinness of it, but don't be deceived. It's going on right here, right now, in our city and in this room. Verse 11 says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles. So not ordinary, not common means of grace, but extraordinary miracles. God was doing it by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So God was kind of accommodating the, the Ephesian uh, kind of expectation of spiritual power, but he was doing it in such a way as pointing their attention to the Apostle Paul so that they could hear the gospel and believe and receive salvation. And that, that was happening. So that, that's, that's the good side of it. But then he says, counter that with the next scene, which is one of the most bizarre scenes of the book of Acts. It says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. What a job title that is, right? <laughs> like, where do you go to school for that? I want to be an itinerant 
Jewish exorcist. Like, I, I would not recommend this job, but apparently it was a lucrative job because they are thousands and thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, their home. So they, they've been able, able to provide for themselves through these exorcisms. And, and they say, you know where we need to go? We need to go to Ephesus. I mean, that, that's a spiritual powder keg. Uh, we'll, we'll go there. We'll, we'll make some money. And so they head to Ephesus. They get to Ephesus. And then they, when they're in Ephesus, they, they, they hear about Paul and this Jesus guy. And they're like, man, maybe that's like a magical incantation, Right? We just say it right, like Harry Potter, we, we can do some stuff with that, with that name of Jesus. And, and so they're like, okay, let, let's try that. Let's, let's, first of all, let's go find a, a demon-possessed person. Right away, I'm out. Like, I'm not going to go look for that, but they're, they're like, let's find a demon-possessed person. So that's bizarre. Number two, they, they, find, they find someone that's demon-possessed, okay? So that, that's bizarre, too. And then they try to exercise this demon. It says... Uh, so my itinerant Jewish exorcist undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they're like, we don't really know this guy, but there seems to be something with his name and this Paul guy. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them. Again, I'm out. Like, I don't think they were expecting this. Maybe they've never had a conversation with a demon, but, but that can't be good when you're trying to do an exorcism when they start talking back to you. And the demon's like, Jesus, I know. Yeah, of course. And he's like, and Paul, I recognize. Like, Paul's been wreaking havoc around here. And then, then what they definitely don't want to hear is, but who are you? So Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. Who are you? Who are you guys? And then verse 16. And the man in whom the evil spirit, whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. Think like a bad kung fu movie. Just seven guys get destroyed by one guy. I don't know how that works. But, but this demon-possessed guy just destroys these guys so that they fled out of the house naked. And I don't think Luke needs to even add the next two words, and wounded. Because if you go into a fight with pants on and you come out of the fight without pants, of course you're wounded, like on multiple levels. Like they're bloodied, battered, and bruised. Yes, that, they, that'll heal. But their soul in that moment, like seven dudes just come running out of the house naked, bleeding, wounded. Like this, this is a power that they can't mess with. This is far beyond their ability to exercise whatever they've done in the past. But this whole thing does something in Ephesus. It, it awakens the, the, the souls of the people. And there's four things that are going to happen. We, we see Jesus says, do the things you did at first. I, I think they come out of this. There's four things that they did that Jesus is saying, hey, guard your affections. What you love matters. How do we guard and stir our affections? We see it here, verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greek, and number one, and fear fell upon them all. Now, now, fear rightly placed is good. So there was a reverential fear of the, of the glory, the holiness, the majesty of who God is. 
And whenever people have an authentic encounter with the living God of the universe, the first thing they're going to do is suck dirt because they, they know they don't deserve, that. There's their, they, they won't live in his presence. Immediately when you get a, a sense of the awe and majesty and mercy of God, immediately you see a sense of your fallenness, a sense of your sinfulness. And so there is a right and good fear. This happens throughout the Bible. John, when he is in Revelation chapter 1, it says he turned to see Jesus. Now, now keep in mind, John was best friends with Jesus. Jesus was his homeboy, right? But in, John 1, in Revelation 1, 17, when he turns and sees the resurrected King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus, in that moment, he says, I fell on my face as though dead. Yeah, that's the proper and right response, John. And, and, and that's what's going to happen. Well, we, we see it in Isaiah. Isaiah gets a, a vision of, of, of the king in glory. And he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king almighty. I'm finished. I'm done. I'm going to die in this moment. And God comes down in mercy and grace and lifts him up. My, my, my favorite picture of this in the Bible is in uh, the book of Leviticus. I know you've been doing your uh, devotions out of that, Uh, but if you don't, you're missing something. So Leviticus, Moses and Aaron have gathered the people of God in Leviticus chapter 9, and they make the first offering, and in this moment, the veil between heaven and earth absolutely gets obliterated. It says this, Leviticus 9, 23, And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. I don't know what that looks like. I just know that is both awesomely amazing and beautiful and terrifying. Think million, a million people gathered together, and the glory of God is revealed from heaven. Not only that, It says, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. So you you, you see the glory of God and then fire just whoosh and it just takes up the the offering as, as God's approval of their offering. And then I love what it says. And when all the people saw it, the NIV says, they shouted for joy and fell on their faces. I just love that picture, right? Think about that. You're like, glory of God, yes, yes, glory. Glory of God, oh my God. Well, we got to get down right now because the glory of God is in this presence and I'm going to die. And a million people do that together. I just think so often in my life, I just think we live in such ignorance of the weight and majesty of the glory of God. We all stand literally on the razor-thin edge of eternity. And in a moment, we will enter into his presence. And all that will matter is our preparation for that moment. And we treat his worship as something to be treated lightly. I'll show up when I want. I'll consider the weight of God when it's convenient for me. We treat the people made in God's image like, like uh, they're nothing. We, we get coffee from them. We live next to them. And yet they alone are resounding that there is a God in heaven who is glorious. And we're just blinded by that. And if we're going to 
stir our affections. There's got to be some part in our life where we're, where we're asking God, Lord, reveal your glory to us. Let us see what is ultimately true and right and worthy of living for. And so they had a holy fear, and that holy fear led to a, a, an authentic extolling and worship of Jesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was magnified. It was lifted high. Uh, an article I read just this morning on another apostate, that means someone who walks away from the faith, this article was talking about uh, what, what apostates don't say. And he was just pointing out that he's, he, say, he had this one line, I remember, he says, uh, the road to apostasy, to walking away from God, is paved with indifference to Jesus. Like, you want to know if you're on a dangerous path? Are you indifferent to King Jesus? That is a dangerous place to be. And so Jesus says, remember where you came from. Remember that time when you feared God and you worshiped me with your whole hearts. Renew your affections for me. So they had a fear of God. They had a worship of Jesus. Verse 18, also many of those who are now believers... I mean, circle that word. This is not unbelievers. He's talking about believers in this moment. Notice what they're doing. Many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And their practices are wicked practices. It says, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. They, they, they were so caught up in the idols of their culture. In, in Ephesus, they were just into these magical incantations and these books. And they were very expensive. And the worship of Artemis. And, and they would give their lives to these things. And these believers now have been captured by the majesty and beauty of Jesus. And they are cut to the heart so that they begin to tell one another about their sinfulness. And it's not just like, oh, you know, I need to confess. I only prayed 17 times this week. No, it's like, hey, brother, I got to tell you how wicked my heart is. Like, I, I have this book that I, I, I put a curse on Julie over there. And I so that she would get sick and die. I'm like, that's pretty dark. But there was an atmosphere of confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Man, oh, that you would have a group of believers where you could be honest with them. Where you could say, hey, here's how wicked my heart is. Here's, here's where my heart's consumed with lust and greed and pride. Uh, I, I just got to confess it. I got to bring it out into the light. Because those things will eat us up and destroy and rob our affections of Jesus. And in the end, it will lead to death if we don't have that. So they have a holy fear of God. They have an authentic worship of Jesus. They have a culture of confession and repentance. And then we see a kind of verse 20 echoes verse 10. It says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. They had a gospel depth and a gospel breadth. They, 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 they treasured the teachings of the word of the Lord. They brought it in. They went deep on it, but then they went wide on it. 
And I think we all have a bent towards one or the other, but, but they would go both. They would, they would love the Lord their God with all their might, and then they would say, this has outworking implications in our lives. And so they would take it to every resident in Asia in two years. So there's the fourth thing. So I ask again, have you ever done a premortem on your soul? Have you ever wondered how you're going to walk away from the faith? Ephesus was full of idols. Parker is full of idols. They look different, but they want the same thing. They want your soul. They want to crush you and destroy you. So, uh, Pastor Tim Keller wrote a book called uh, Counterfeit Gods, one of the greatest books on idolatry you can read. Uh, But he gives us a a helpful diagnostic. He says there's two things you can do to diagnose what your idols are. And as Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. We all have them. It's always cranking out new ones to to give ourselves away to. He says, "Here's, here's two things you can know how your idols are. What do you daydream about? What do you spend your time thinking, man, if I just had that, man, then life would be worth living for. If I had that person or that job or that house or that that thing or that in my retirement account, then I would be safe. I would have some security. So you begin to get creative on how you're going to get that thing. Tim Keller would say, that's probably your idol. He says, but also conversely, it's not just your daydreams. What are your nightmares? Like, what are the things that you are so white knuckling at night? You're like, man, I don't know if life would be worth living. If something happened to my kid or or my spouse, or my job, or my house, or my bank account, or the stock market, like, that, that also reveals our idols. So what do you daydream about? What is your nightmares? Identify your idols and crush them. Crush them in community. Bring them out. Confess them. But Jesus gives us an even more simple diagnostic. Jesus, you know, he, he talked a lot about the kingdom of heaven, but did you know Jesus about twice as often as he talked about the kingdom of heaven, he talked about the reality of hell. And more than heaven and hell combined, you know what Jesus' number one topic to talk about was? Money. Money. Why? Why is, why is a sermon on money or a sermon series on money your least favorite sermon series? Because it's your idol. It's your place where you get safety, security, comfort. And so Jesus said, hey, there is just this really intimate connection between our hearts and our money. So he said, Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to know what you really love? Let us see your bank account. It's not because Jesus wanted money. Jesus was not a health and wealth, like he was not buying cars and jets, you know, deal with the timeline on that, but he wanted your heart. He was pursuing our hearts. And so do you have a plan for stirring and guarding your affections? Notice all that they did, they did together. If you don't have a plan, that's okay. We have a plan. We call it gospel communities. We'd love for you to be a part of one where you can begin to experience these things, a guarding and a stirring of your affections. I want to just close by looking once again at Revelation chapter 2, because there was one more thing that Jesus had to say to the church at Ephesus. In verse 7, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Jesus says, do you have an ear to hear? When I studied this and I taught this a long time ago, I said, well, there it is. In the New Testament, we see the birth, the life, and the death of a church. Until one day, a friend of mine came up to me and said, well, maybe not. <laughs> it doesn't seem like that maybe is the end. He said, in fact, we have a letter from a guy named Ignatius, who was the bishop of Antioch, about 10 to 20 years after this was written. And, and he was arrested by Rome, and he was taken He was on his way to Rome to be executed, but on his way, he stopped in another church called Smyrna, which wasn't far from Ephesus. And when he was in Smyrna, the church at Ephesus sent him a care package and a representative and a letter to encourage him. And we have that from history. And in it, in the letter, he said that the Ephesian church were, listen to this, characterized by faith in and love of Christ Jesus, our Savior. And he rejoices that they love nothing in human life, only God. He also praises that their elder Onesimus, calling him a man of inexpressible love, and says that he could see the love of the whole Ephesian church in the love of the representative they sent. Apparently, at least for a time, they had ears to hear what the Spirit was saying to the church. And my prayer is that Redemption Parker would always have ears to hear what the Spirit says. To that end, let me pray for us. So, Father, we do come before you now. What what an amazing thing even that statement is, that we can come before you in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that that the people in this room, that this church together, we would we would guard our affections and stir our affections for you, Jesus. May we rightly hold doctrine, but may we also live that out in ways that love you and love one another and love this city. Father, I pray that there would be a holy fear that in our lives of you just as we gaze upon your glory and majesty. I pray that Jesus would be lifted high in our affections and in our, our words and our work and our worship. Lord, I pray that we would develop a culture of confession and repentance, that that our idols would be smashed so that our hearts can be given fully to you. Father, I pray that you take us deep and wide in the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.